A warm welcome to Ask Agra Family History Question Time, a series of podcasts recorded in a panel discussion format featuring key professional genealogists from the Association of Genealogists and Researchers in Archives in England and Wales, joined by special guests from the world of family history research. Our panel today will focus on the field of researching military ancestors, whether Army, Navy or Air Force, and also including those who served in British India. Many people researching World War I ancestors with a military service record have been able to draw on the many resources provided that the records have survived. But what about researching pre and post World War I? Fortunately, we have just the turbocharged team to discuss our topic, led by Helen Tovey, the editor of Family Tree magazine, who is our moderator today. Helen is not only an editor, but is also a published author of several family history titles and has been very involved in the Family History Live show at Alexandra Palace in London, which we hope to see return soon. Helen is joined firstly by Les Mitchinson, who is very well known to students of the Institute of Heraldic and Genealogical Studies everywhere. Following a distinguished naval career, Les qualified as a professional genealogist and is not only an AGRA member, but has also served as Vice Chair of Council. He is a regular speaker at conferences, fairs and events and runs his own research practice, Elementary Education and Research. Like Les, our next guest, Simon Fowler, has an encyclopedic knowledge of military history and research. Originally an archivist with an MA from University College London, Simon then worked at the National Archives at Kew and in his spare time edited a few family history magazines, but now focuses on his work as an author, researcher and speaker and is prodigious in the extreme. Simon's research practice is the history man. He too is an AGRA member and a council member. We just don't have sufficient time to mention all of the titles that he has published over the years about army and navy ancestors, as well as workhouse ancestors, most of which are published by Pen and Sword and the History Press. Although Simon would like to remind everyone that all of his books are available at good bookshops everywhere. Rounding up our trio of expert panellists is Mike Trenchard of the Trenchard Partnership, another AGRA member and former council secretary he found that his own personal research took him to the College of Arms in London, where the family he is descended from are registered from as early as the 13th century. Mike also has a field of specialism in military research, but also in the British in India, and has been included on the approved research agent list for the British Library with its Asian and African collections, dealing primarily with the records of the East India Company and the India Office. So, without further ado, Helen Toby has some questions to put to our panel. So, what information will a researcher need to draw together to get started with military records, whether they're Army or Navy or Air Force? So, Les, have you got some ideas for somebody who's new to this topic? First of all, it's uh, who is the person in question? These things do fall out of, of family records by accident sometimes. But if you know which service and whether or not he's a, if it's a soldier, which regiments or corps, all these things can come out of family records. It's getting started. It's, is he an officer or is he another rank? Do you know, for example, what the officer ranks are or the other ranks? Um, was he a rating in the Navy or Royal Marine or Airmen? Because the research paths are different for officers and other ranks for all services. And the period too is important and it will dictate the, um, the type of research. For example, in the Royal Navy, if the person you're looking for is before 1853, then that's critical. Uh, for the uh, Royal Marines, it, 1842. And of course, there's a really good example 
1918, because before 1918, there was no such thing as the RAF. Uh, so these are particularly helpful points. If you then do know the service, other information that might be helpful would be, for example, the Royal Navy, a place and a date of birth, because the records, so the way that they present themselves when you're searching for them on online catalogues, the Royal Navy will give you is year of birth and place of birth, which is useful for identifying him. A Royal Marine, for example, is also a place and date of birth and where the person was living. So if you've got information based on an individual that lived in uh, through the census returns, for example, and lived in, say, Portsmouth or Chatham or Plymouth, then it's a good bet that the individual, the Royal Marine, would be, would be based in one of those three places because there are three divisions of the Royal Marines. And the final one, the harder one, would be the Army. We always say that the one thing that you should try and identify is his regiment in which he served, because all records are really based on, on regiments. And so if you could get that, and that's a really good start. I think that's what I would uh, consider to be quite enough information to get you started. Whether or not you'll be successful is another matter. That sounds great. So as ever with family history research, it's a case of piecing together the era and trying to kind of orientate yourself a little bit so you can build up on it. And I know in recent years, many of us, um, we've you know, really enjoyed finding out about our ancestors through the First World War, having you know, that centenary to kind of trigger lots of research. But later records, they can be more difficult and not necessarily so easy to find. So, Mike, so how would someone go about obtaining military records, say, post-1921, particularly for World War II? Now we're thinking about that with some of those anniversaries coming around. Yeah, a lot of people are interested in um, World War II. Obviously, before 1921, if you're going for the First World War or back into the 19th century, those records will be in the National Archives. But after 1921, those records are still with the Ministry of Defence. They haven't yet been transferred to the National Archives. However, you can obtain those records on uh, payment of a £30 fee and the, the forms to complete to apply for those records are online. So if you put in MOD service records into Google, you'll find the relevant uh, government forms. If you're the next of kin, if you're not, that, that's a kind of crucial thing. Because uh, if the gentleman died less than 25 years ago, the MOD will not supply a complete service record. They will redact part of it. So it's, it's much better either if you are the next of kin or you fill in the forms and authorise someone else, a third party, maybe a professional genealogist, to do it on your behalf. But you will need a death certificate to send to the MOD. And the crucial thing you will need is a date of birth, because that's how they generally index it. But the forms do ask for whatever other information you have, such as the, the regiment they were in and so on. There are different addresses for the Army, the Navy and the Air Force to send the forms. But at the moment, even without COVID-19, it takes several months to get the, the service record from the Ministry of Defence. And at the moment, I am still waiting for something from last November I applied for. I still don't have the, uh, the service record. So COVID-19 has really exacerbated the, uh, the whole thing. But eventually, you can get a service record which details uh, the regiment they were in, uh, where they served, the locations, a real mass of information 
that you can then use. So, for instance, for the Second World War, once you know the units they were in, you could look at the war diaries to find out uh, what action or what activities they were involved in. There clearly are records that are well worth waiting for because they're such a great launch pad, aren't they, for everything absolutely, else? Absolutely. Mm. And um, for instance, if somebody um, was serving in the Navy, then perhaps you might want to go on and research the ship. And I know, um, Les, this is a topic close to your heart. So what would be best places for researching the Royal Navy and associated records, such as the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve? And as I say, information about the ship that your ancestor might have served on. Yes, you're right. He's right up my street, having served a full career with the Royal Navy. So this is my favourite subject, obviously. The National Archives is the place to go to initially, so we, we must always start with that. The National Archives is just simply full of, um, of naval records, which many have been digitised and will be made available through their discovery catalogue. The National Archives has a wonderful research service, research guides, and I think there are about 20, 20 individual research guides for the Royal Navy. So that would be my first protocol, the National Archives. I live close to Portsmouth and Portsmouth History Centre in Guildhall Square is an absolute gem of a place to go. It's a library that's just full of naval records, not necessarily service records, but lots of other records, and particularly books and uh, Navy lists, for example. So I go to Portsmouth History Centre. A third place I would go to is the National Maritime Museum, which have uh, official records, many personal records, many records of uh, lieutenants, logbooks, many personal papers of admirals. So a trip to Greenwich for the National Maritime Museum is, is a must also. So there are three. Museums are always useful to go to. And, and again, down in Portsmouth, there are two really good ones. One is the Navy Museum in the dockyard. And the other one at uh, Eastney is the Royal Marines Museum. So two excellent uh, museums, both of which I visited. And again, similar personal belongings, uh, artifacts, photographs, magazines, and some research facilities for both. You mentioned that the RMVR, the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserves, many of their records will be available through the National Archives at the Discovery website. And there's also a collection of records for the RMVR held by the Fleet Air Arm Museum at Yeovilton. So there you are. Now, we talked about ships. If you wanted to particularly look at a ship and understand it, the ship and the, the similar ships in the same class, then there are a couple of references. I, I need to read them out slowly, but the sailing list which is all the ships of the Royal Navy built, I like this bit, purchased and captured between the years 1688 and 1860 by D. Lyon. It's a wonderful book. I use it quite a lot. I use it at Portsmouth History Centre. It gives me a good feel for the ship and other ships in the same class. I have a book on my bookshelf here, J.J. Collins, The Ships of the Royal Navy. Every ship is named. Um, so when you talked in the previous question about uh, service records and how valuable they are, Sometimes you need to know what these words are, these ships, and, and what type of ships they are. Were they shore establishments? Were they ships? Were they big fighting ships? Were they small fire ships, for example? And Bruce Warlow, I've got, he looks on the other side, the, the shore establishments of the Royal Navy. So there you go. So I've got uh, two books on my bookshelf, which I can use when I get these wonderful service records in. If you go down even deeper to the next level, we can talk about the ships themselves. So you've identified the ship probably through the service records. And you now want to know what that ship did or what your ancestor did on that ship for those three or four years. And so there is a series of books in the Navy Department of the National Archives, we, the Admiralty, which is, um, the code is ADM. And those books are in the series 5050 to 54. And they're a series of ship's logs. They're captain's logs, they're admiral's logs, they're master's logs, they're lieutenant's logs. And they basically tell you, like a diary, the day-to-day -day happenings of a ship. 
And if your ship got into a battle, for example, Trafalgar, it's recorded. If your ship happened to take on board the ex-emperor of France, then it's recorded. And if your ancestor fell from the rigging and was drowned at sea, it's recorded. So you can actually go so deep down that you can actually find out what your ancestors did on a particular ship on a day-to-day basis. That sounds amazing. I, I wish I had more naval ancestors after hearing all that. And you talked about museums and books, and it's fantastic to think of all the kind of resources that are out there to help us in the research. And I know that there's definitely one sort of artefact which really does spark people's interest in it, and that's medals. And so, Simon, if people are seeking information regarding medals and awards, are there any special record sets that would cover citations and reveal more than just a type of medal that's awarded so people can understand why the ancestor might have actually got these medals? Ah, it depends on what medal you're talking about, of course. There are various types of medals. The armed forces don't make it easy in this way. There are basically two types of medals. There's gallantry medals for which you're awarded for an act of bravery during battle. Uh, Sometimes uh, the same medals are are awarded for uh, considerable hard work during the course of of a campaign or a war. And then there are the campaign medals which are awarded basically for turning up to something. So if you're at a, a, in a particular war or sometimes a particular action, you will be awarded a medal whether you do anything gallant or indeed do anything that were just uh, behind the lines. Um, there are various ways of finding what sort of medals are where. The best bet, if you're researching gallantry medals, all gallantry medals will be listed in the London Gazette, which is the official government journal which is published several times a week and has been since the 1660s and they include just brief detail of the medal uh, who it was awarded to and the date it was gazetted that is published in the London Gazette so you get a rough idea when a gallantry medal was awarded. Sometimes for the more senior or more important medals like Victoria Cross or the Distinguished Service Order, then there might be what they call a citation. A citation gives you a brief idea of how the medal was awarded. Normally it doesn't say you, doesn't tell you very much, but it's better than nothing. You say um, the man was awarded the Military Cross for going out to rescue his comrades in no man's land or something like that. Uh, gives you enough that you know why the medal was awarded, but not enough to give any information away to the enemy or anything like that. For campaign uh, medals, that is, the were well, awarded to everybody who was present in an action, there are such things as medal rolls. Those up to the First World War and some for the interwar period are available through Ancestry. And they will just tell you, uh, give you a man's number, give you the regiment, uh, tell you which campaigns he was in. Often they may be what they call a, a, a bar, or uh, which will just give you the action of siege of some fort or other, or a minor skirmish in South Africa or what have you. And then the, a bar will be awarded for that. So you get a rough idea from the medal rolls about how about a man's career in, in a particular war. For the First World War, there are very or quite detailed medal cards and medal rolls, which are again available on Ancestry. They're awarded for men who served overseas. So if you have a man who just spent his career in, in the UK or in Ireland, then there isn't a medal. But for, for anybody who served overseas, there are at least two medals that everybody has awarded, the British War Medal and the Allied Victory Medal. Uh, and there are a couple of other ones as well. So the, for basically for medals, if you don't want, if you're looking for gantry medals, 
Ancestry is the place to start. A lot of the material is also available on Find My Past, uh, but Ancestry probably is the best place to start. Um, Mike, have you got anything else that you'd like to add about just, this? Just a couple of things. Um, the National Army Museum have a series of folders on each of the recipients of the Victoria Cross. And it is a folder of several documents, each man, which explains a bit more than the citation. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was medals awarded in uh, India. Often the Indian General Service Medal was awarded for campaigns and they often put different clasps on the ribbon. So for the Indian Mutiny, for instance, and we'll probably talk about the Indian Mutiny a little later, there are different clasps depending on the actual battle, not just the war, but the, the battle. It's great, isn't it, how much detail you can get out of the medals. And if you're lucky enough to see a photo of an ancestor wearing their medals, even if you haven't got the medals, then you can kind of piece together little clues from that. And I think the idea of our ancestors being extra gallant is, is something that we often maybe let ourselves run away with a bit as an idea. And very often we hear in the magazine, and I know my own family history as well, we have ancestors who um, we like to think fought at Culloden and Waterloo and the Somme. And then I'm like, really in one family, is that, everyone, is that actually possible? So um, other medal roles or other records, what can we do to help prove or disprove these stories, perhaps, Simon? Much as we love a good story, as family historians, we have got to stick to the facts a little bit, haven't we? If you're doing military history, uh, you get a lot of people who will contact you and say, my ancestors did that, my son's ancestors did that. Um, and so often they just made it up, particularly for the Second World War for some reason, but for other wars, I'm sure, as well. Or you'll tell people that, you know, my ancestor was at the Somme or something like that. It's actually surprisingly hard to find anything to prove that somebody was a particular battle for the Waterloo, the only real exception to that is for the Waterloo, uh, for that Battle of Waterloo in June 1815, when there are detailed records were kept and everybody who was at the battle received a medal. So you know fairly accurately who was at the medal, who was at the battle. But for the two world wars, it's actually much harder. Um, you, if you know the uh, regiment or ship that a person was with, then there are the war diaries for the army and the captain's reports for. Uh, naval ships or operation record books for the, for the RAF and that will give you a description of what the unit did especially for war dives particularly can be quite very detailed but the chances of your ancestor being named in person is pretty remote unless he was an officer so there is material but you need to dig away and you need to know particularly which unit they were with so it's calling for kind of hardcore research isn't it as ever with challenges yeah I should have added had he been killed in action, then there are, for the Sioux World Wars, uh, then there is the Commonwealth War Graves Commission uh, website. Uh, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission cares for all the war graves around the world and they have a marvellous website with all the, all the information they have about these men. And so if a man was killed during either of the two World Wars, you can get pretty detailed information from the uh, Commission's website. That's a good tip. I'm just going to say, I mean, similar to Simon, we spend a lot of time trying to research and follow for clients who request that their, maybe their ancestor fought at Waterloo. Two quick ones. One was my grandfather who was at Jutland, so I was able to use those ship's diaries, as I mentioned earlier. 
to piece together what HMS Warspite was doing the day before when she was at church in Rosyth to actually fighting the Germans when she was damaged, her rudder was damaged. So that was a really good story to get. Uh, but the other one, was, which was one of my first stories, was an absolute gem to do. My client suggested that his ancestor may have fought at Waterloo. Could you shed any light on it? So I went off and, and searched a variety of records, army lists and, um, and service records, and he did fight at Waterloo, and he was a captain. He was a captain and his major on the eve of the battle fell off his horse and broke his leg. And so he was replaced by the captain. The captain was promoted acting major and therefore led the regiment into battle at Waterloo. He gave a good account of himself. When he came out of it, Wellington promoted all his commanding officers. So this acting major, who was a captain the day before, became a lieutenant colonel. Not only that, he was knighted. So when I went back to my client, he was absolutely delighted on the story that I found for him. There you go. I bet. I should add a couple of stories of really sort of the reverse, really. Uh, years ago, I was contacted by somebody whose father had been a, a paid assassin during the Second World War. <laughs> <laughs> His father, who, as far as I can tell, uh, basically had a hernia and missed most of the war. And when he went back into the, the service, as we call it, the, from the hernia, he was a cinema operator. So he just made up this story. Mm. Uh, and even to the stage where it was picked up by one of the newspapers just before he died, and they featured him as, as the assassin. But I could yeah. find no evidence of it. Yeah. So, you know, I, you, I do get a reasonable number of cases where clearly men who have not had a pretty distinguished career in the war. They spent four years at the uh, Catholic clothing centre or something. Just make it up to their family. And the family believe that you know, they, they've been on D-Day or, or wherever. It's very hard to tell their beloved father or grandfather who'd been telling them a pack of lies all these years. Mm, one of uh, my grandfathers, he was prisoner of war for about seven months in Rangoon um, in the Second World War. So he clearly had a really bad time. He was shot down. That's why he ended up there. Anyway, one of his favourite war stories was how he got shot down in the Battle of Britain and he landed on the beach, I don't know, somewhere near Dover, and he had to stand stock still because it, and the whole beach was mined and he had to be carefully taken off the beach. And I've looked all through his logbooks. I've looked and looked and looked. There's no evidence of this. So despite him having a very exciting, traumatic, prestigious war career, he still made things up. So it's just a, a minefield sorting out the kind of facts and the fiction. Mm, yeah. yeah, crazy stuff. Um, so... All these challenges. So, Les, what, what are the main challenges in researching professional soldiers and sailors before the First World War? And say, how far back might somebody expect to find records for regular and you know, irregular servicemen as well? It, it can be quite challenging because I'm sure that Simon and Mike have got a number of, of scenarios where they've been led down rabbit holes. And I've just li listed a few, maybe some of the more common ones. And so you're trying to find your ancestor and you can't get even started because he gave false information when he enlisted. And for whatever reason, why did he enlist? Was he running away from a marriage? Was he running away from the law? You know, he's given a false name and maybe we'll get uh, the truth in the end, but that might be a, a huge hurdle. The records themselves may not have survived. The military are pretty good at saving records, but equally... Records do not survive. For example, I was following a naval officer and I was doing quite well until the ship he was on was captured by the French. 
And of course, then all the records are destroyed. I didn't know he was captured by the French, of course, because there was just no records. I had to find it through other means that the ship was captured by the French. And so that sort of breaks up the records and there's nothing else I can use. The force itself has not been formed. When I say force, it could be anything. And I'll use as a good example, the RAF. The RAF wasn't formed until 1918. So before that, you had a, a soldier or a sailor as your RAF man. So you've got to think about the alternative methods for research. The person didn't serve to pension. And so if he didn't serve to pension, then there's a possibility in some of the earlier records that service records, which are very important, uh, don't survive for him because there was no need to keep them. So if a person served to pension, then you're okay. But if he didn't serve to pension, then you may not have service records. And service records are very important as a sort of an accelerated way of, of finding out about your ancestor. And the one that always thwarts me is the person deserted. And if the person deserted, away go all the records with him as he runs away. So that's on the personal side. And there's a couple of things that you would look at when you're considering sort of a research strategy. And that would be something like, I mentioned it earlier, 1853, the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy down to 1833 is continuous service. You know, you're employed for a particular amount of years. Before then, you're not. So there's no service records before then. It's from 1853. So if, if you're looking for somebody before then, it's a very, I wouldn't say difficult, but it's much harder. Similar, the Royal Marines is 1884. You know, that's when they created the service records for Royal Marines, 1884. If you had been serving, your, your records would be created prior to 1884. So they go back to 1842, but basically from 1884. And a soldier, well, his records, his service records, really start about 1760. And so before that, you have to look at other records, such as uh, roles. So you could find a man up to those dates by simply searching on a website, Ancestry, Find My Pass, anything that would give you a database. But before then, it's harder. So um, there are many, many challenges, and um, they're just a few of them. Um, Mike, would you like to add something to that? Yeah, if, if a pension record uh, doesn't exist, say in the army, someone's left, deserted, or, or even died in service, they won't be service record but you can use um, muster books to trace someone's uh, career really from enlistment uh, the muster books were recorded mainly to record pay and they go year by year if you're lucky obviously you need to know the regiment that they were in but you can quite often trace the whole of the career of, of a soldier by using the muster books. They're in the National Archives. Yeah. I should add that it's very hard that you can, to find anything about a, a soldier's family. I'm often asked about whether they all contain details of marriages or the children born, and almost always, certainly up to the 1870s, really, there is nothing. Very occasionally there is, but, you know, you can assume that nothing. So would it be a case then of just if you found a berth in an unusual place, trying to find out which regiments might have been based there? Is that too yeah. difficult? No, it's not difficult. Well, you're the professionals. That's why it's not difficult, isn't it? Frankly, I'd say it was impossible, but people clearly have done it because I get contacted by the There is a book which uh, gives the location of the regiments at different dates, which is quite useful if you get stuck. It's called For Forlorn Hope. In Search of the Forlorn Hope. In Search of the Forlorn Hope. I mean, there is, there is the... Um, Simon talked about families, and occasionally you will pick up families because their, their husband was killed in service. 
and they resort to charity. You've got to be extremely lucky to get that. But there are some some records, but it's usually because the poor soul has been killed in service. Some of the muster books do have a marriage establishment, uh, if you're lucky, and they will give the name of the wife. And sometimes they will tell you about children, their ages, but not their names. So the challenge is if you haven't got the service records. So if you've got service records, and the service records often, the army in particular, the army will give you the details of the next of kin and children and where they were born. So, you know, when you find them in Singapore, Malaysia, India, you know, you're tracking the regiment as it's moving along. Thinking of India, because um, so many of our ancestors lived there you know, as civilians and military as well. So, um, Mike, have you got some ideas for key resources for people who are searching ancestors you know, who served in the military or in the civil service as well in India? Well, there were lots of people who, who served in India and a kind of watershed moment is 1858, which is when the Indian mutiny took place. Or maybe the the first war of independence, depending on how your view is, you know. So uh, before 1858, India was largely governed by the East India Company, which had been formed in 1600, uh, initially as a trading company, but eventually it became a de facto government. And it formed three presidencies, or so-called presidencies, Bengal, which covered most of Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Burma, which is now Myanmar. Madras, which is the, the, the southeastern part of the India subcontinent. And the smallest presidency was Bombay on the, the west coast. So they had separate armies for each presidency. And the civil service was also divided between, between those services. After 1858, the UK government decided that enough was enough, and they basically took over the East India Company. So the armies of the East India Company were merged with the British Army, certainly after 1860. And once we get up to about 1890, you get the start of the Indian Army. But the East India Company was no more after, after 1858. So you have to realise which of those areas you're dealing with. If I talk about the military first, and I'm talking about the East India Company's armies, it depends on whether you're dealing with an officer or a soldier. The records of the East India Company and the India Office are, are now in the British Library and there is an absolute wealth of information, although quite often it's not very easy to get into. There's no set way, as it were, of, of getting into them. There are a number of different ways in which you, you can get into them. The officers often became a officer cadet and the the cadet papers, particularly from the early part of the 19th century, are very, very informative. They will tell you the name of the father of the, the cadet. They will tell you his education and where it took place. Um, they will tell you the, uh, the type of education he'd had. They will tell you the ship on which he travelled to India. 
and the date of when he arrived in India. And it will also give a baptism record of the individual as well. So, you know, it's a real uh, gold mine almost uh, as far as uh, officers are concerned. With soldiers, they're mainly kind of lists and you have recruitment lists, embarkation lists, that's a list of people who went onto ships, and you have service lists as well. So there is quite a lot of information, whether it's an officer or, or a soldier. As far as the civil service is concerned, there were two types of civil servants, so-called covenanted and uncovenanted. And the covenanted ones had to pay a bond to keep them in place, uh, to keep their nose clean. And um, they were often trained in the first instance um, at a college for civil servants called Haleybury. Haleybury um, is near Hertford in Hertfordshire. And the, these days it's a private school, but the, uh, the buildings were used um, for um, training civil servants um, of the East India Company. And there was a hierarchy of civil servants from, from writer right the way up to, to merchant. And obviously once they arrived in India, they had the more senior jobs. The uncovenanted civil servants were often recruited locally, uh, but they tended to be uh, European. One exception would be perhaps on the railways. Some of the railways were private, some of the railways were uh, owned by the government or by the East India Company. Quite a few Anglo-Indians became employed on the railways. There's records certainly of baptisms, marriages and burials in India, which are in the British Library, mainly concerned Christians, and mainly Europeans. One difficulty can be if you know that your ancestor went to India, but you don't know what kind of job he had. You, you know, perhaps he wasn't in the military, but you've no idea where. Uh, well, there's one section of the, the catalogue that deals with the death of uncovenanted civil servants by name, and there it will give you their date of birth, and what branch of the civil service they were in, and details obviously of, the, of their death as well. So that's a small flavour of the kind of records you'll find, but if you're lucky, you can find out an enormous amount of information about any ancestor who lived and worked in India. That's great. That's, I mean, that is a huge amount of information. I still got another question, though. So just to clarify, um, what would be the difference between service in the East India Company and in the British Army in India? Well, the East India Company's armies, Bengal, Madras and Bombay, their records are in the British Library, as I said. But the British Army also had regiments in India as well at the same time, concurrently. And records of those regiments are in the National Archives. So you need to know which place to go. Was he in the British Army in India or was he in the East India Company's armies in India? After the Indian Mutiny, quite a lot of the armies were merged with the British Army. There are two very good books on the armies 
which were published by the Families in British India Society, Fibbies for short. And there's, they're both uh, guides by uh, Peter Bailey. And there's one up to the Indian Mutiny and one from the Indian Mutiny up to 1947 when India became independent. Uh, Phoebus have also published a number of fact files and number seven gives major sources for ancestors in the Indian public service. And that can be very good in finding out where to look. In the, the senior and middle ranking civil servants, they're often included in histories of service in classes V12 and V13 in the British Library. And again, you'll, if you're lucky, you'll find a wealth of information. Thank you, Mike. So my brain is reeling from all the information that you've been sharing this afternoon. And so clearly there's some bits that a regular family historian could undertake themselves, but there's other aspects which is going to be too hard. So Simon, like how could a professional researcher help someone research their military ancestors? Uh, <laughs> in my view, professional researchers are basically plumbers. You can either do your plumbing yourself, which I certainly never do, and you might get a great deal of pleasure from it and you'll save quite a lot of money. But there comes a stage where you, perhaps you want the work done, in my case, when the taps go, then, uh, then you call in a professional. And that's when you'd call in myself or uh, Michael Lairs, uh, because if you're doing your military history and you're stuck and you want to know all about the Indian Army and you haven't got time to or, the, or uh, inclination to find out more about it, then you'd go to... Uh, to Mike, or if you want to know more about, say, the Second World War, then you might come to me. You know, we're, we're here to help you get your way on your research. We hope we've got the skills, and we certainly hope that we've got, got the knowledge. And, of course, being a member of Agra means that, you know, we are, we are the best researchers that can be found in the UK. Or, sorry, in England and Wales, I should say, really. I like your plumber analogy because that's always, isn't it? The plumber knows where to hit the pipe or whatever. And you guys, I guess, know where the records are in the office. You know that's what exactly. there is available to choose yeah. from. Whereas um, somebody who um, hasn't got that professional background, they, they won't even know what they're missing. That's such an easy position to be in when any of us doing any aspect of our family history, isn't it? So finally, because I'm a very nosy person, I think it'd be great to finish off and hear some of your personal recommendations. So... Out of the many records you use, I'm imagining you must have favourite useful record sets that you like to like, turn to again and again, perhaps for earlier research or for a particular aspect of military history you're really into. So, Les, have you got something that you, you just always enjoy looking at? Well, not surprisingly, uh, Helen, I'm going to talk about the Royal Navy. And, of course, the difficulties that you get prior to 1853, when continuous service is introduced, because these records sort of straddle pre- and, and post 1853, they are collectively known as the ship's um, pay and muster books. So they are simply a record of all those persons who served on board a particular ship during a particular commission. And they do carry lots of information. They're in the Admiralty Department, so ADM, and they sort of range from 31 to 39. So all those numbers are covered. And they range from 1669 to 1878. There's also another book within that group called the a Description Book. And it's still a muster book. And that's ADM 838. And that's, from, that's later, 1836 to 1872. And that can give you a full record of a man's career. 
So if you're struggling to find him and there are no service records, a description book will give you everything. It's very much like a paper trail. You've got to chase the individual from ship to ship. And that's why I like them. They're extended into the later 19th century with what we call record and establishment books. And then finally, ship's ledgers. And those two records are ADM 115 and the second one, the ship's ledgers, ADM 117. I use them all the time, Helen, all the time. I spend most of my days plugging these wonderful books. They are super. They're my favourites. At least you can get back to the National Archives now and look at them, hopefully. Yes, I'm, I'm totally yeah. biased. I'm totally yeah. biased. <laughs> what about you, Simon? Have you got a favourite record set? Oh, I think I'll go for the War Diaries for the Two World Wars, which again are at the National Archives. And they are a daily record of what each unit of battalion or transport company or something like that did day by day. And they depend very much on who is writing them. So sometimes, and when you know what's going on, because if there's a, there's a big battle going on, there's going to be quite a lot of detail. But if there are a bakery unit, say, in the in, uh, back long behind the lines, then there's not going to be very much information. Uh, but you can, you can, particularly for the First World War, get quite a flavour of, of, of the people who are actually running the, the unit. I remember did a search for somebody in a war diary where clearly the person writing the war diary, the commanding officer, was about to have a nervous breakdown. The, the entries got weirder and weirder. And I came across a wonderful war diary for, in Salonika where the transport company the man was in charge of was very boringly just taking supplies up to the front. But he was much more interested in amateur dramatics. So there's no description of the fact we set up, uh, you know, two dozen lawyers a day carrying corned beef or something. It was all about we put on Chuchin Chow or Yoma the Guard or what have you. So, you know, the war diaries can, mm. if you're lucky, really bring to life a, a man's career in the army, give you a real flavour of what, uh, what went on. And what about you, Mike? Have you got a favourite um, record set? I do have a favourite record set, but it's rather niche. Uh, but I'll tell you why. The class number is G32 in the British Library, and it's called Consultations in St Helena. St Helena was owned by the East India Company up to the Indian Mutiny. It was a kind of staging post for ships on the way, particularly back from India because they had to go round the Cape of Good Hope. The Suez Canal didn't exist, of course, uh, until the 1870s. And these consultation documents cover everything, absolutely everything that happened on St. Helena. So you have a census of all the inhabitants, you have land transactions, you have trials, you know, mutiny, murder, whatever, it's a microcosm of information about what happened on the island throughout you know, more than 150 years. So um, that's what I... It's, I say it's not, not something you would um, look at every day, but it is absolutely fascinating. And as it happens, I'm going to see that document this coming Friday at the British Library. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you. And for those of you listening at home, our panel of experts can be contacted by the websites which are detailed on this page of the AGRA website, 
And also there, you'll be able to find a handout, because I'm sure you agree with me, there have been so many resources mentioned throughout that your brain will be find it really hard to take in. But on the handout, you have everything you need. And finishing off there, you'll also have a recommended website and book from each of Mike and Simon and Les. So you can take your research further at home and begin to learn more before you might need to kind of turn to them for more professional advice. So and one last thing, if you have a question that you'd like to ask them, this isn't a brick wall solving problem, but something more general, maybe if you're looking for a record set rather than trying to um, find out something about your own grandpa, please feel free to send it in to askagra at agra.org.uk. And this just leaves me to thank our excellent panel today and all their knowledge. So Simon Fowler, Les Mitchinson and Mike Trenchard, thank you very much.